0: This is Cashflow Ninja, episode 179, with Andrew Howell.
1: Welcome to the Cashflow Ninja, the podcast empowering and inspiring people to discover how to generate their own income and manage, grow, and protect their own wealth in the new economy. Now, here is your host, MC Laubscher.
0: Hi there, MC Lobster here, and welcome to another episode of the Cashflow Ninja. I have a great show for you today, and in today's episode, we're going to look at how to build a family legacy that lasts. When families transfer wealth from one generation to another, most families see their wealth decrease as it is fully exposed to wealth destroyers like we have discussed on the show before, such as taxes, inflation, professional fees and commissions, and many other factors, but most notably, the generation receiving the wealth did not produce, create, and build it and does not have the principles and values of of the generation that created and built the wealth, and they don't share the same responsibility to protect and grow the wealth as the generation that produced, created, and built it. We've all heard the expressions before like shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. The third generation have very little, if anything, in common with the first generation that created and built the wealth. The third generation are usually also referred to as trust fund babies and members of the lucky sperm club. So the majority of families will lose their wealth over three generations. This is not just only a problem of the poor and the middle class. The Vanderbilt fortune is a great example, contrasted with the European Rothschild banking family and the American Rockefellers. The Vanderbilt's, once one of the richest families on the planet. Hardly is a millionaire left amongst them, while the Rockefellers and Rothschilds are still two of the most powerful families on the planet. So what do the small percentage of legacy families do that protect and grow their wealth exponentially with every generation? When you look closely at legacy families, when they pass on wealth, they just don't pass on money to the next generation. They pass on core principles and values opportunity, and responsibility to the next generation. My guest today, Andrew Howell, co-authored a book, Entrusted, Building a Legacy That Lasts. In the book, he lays out the foundations of the entrusted planning process, which aligns the principles and values of a family with their tangible assets and prepares future generations to build a true and lasting legacy. It's a process that draws from the very origins of a state law, which placed the highest value on who was involved, on who was entrusted. Entrusted planning goes back to preparing the beneficiaries for wealth beyond just the legal concept of a trust and takes into account the relational maturation of the person or persons being entrusted as stewards of resources, not just consumers and users of it. Entrusted planning is about transferring opportunities instead of just assets and doing so over multiple generations. So, by focusing on the means to an end, which includes education, personal character development, home ownership, entrepreneurship, charitable service, as opposed to the end stocks, bonds, mutual funds, real estate, and businesses. Entrusted planning has the greatest potential to do the maximum amount of multi-generational good with the least amount of collateral damage. Entrusted families have goals that are both deep and very broad. They're less interested in preparing their families to be rich and more interested in preparing the family to manage, sustain, and carry on a rich legacy. Andrew Hull identified seven core disciplines that can be found across a multitude of successful high net worth families going back hundreds of years. And these are not hypothetical or idealistic disciplines. These are disciplines that are real and permeate through the families who have embraced these concepts. A little bit about Andrew Andrew Howell is a co-founder and managing partner of the Salt Lake City law firm, York Howell & Gaiman. Andrew represents clients with respect to estate planning, probate and estate administration matters, charitable giving, and sophisticated business and tax planning matters. His practice in his area of specialty includes assisting clients in the preparation and review of trusts and wills instruments for charitable giving, and various other estate and family planning documents. Andrew assists in planning and structuring business organizations, stock and asset sales and purchases, buy, sell, and shareholder agreements, and other business buyout and business succession planning. Please share your feedback and thoughts on today's interview. You can let me know your thoughts on Twitter by tweeting me at MC Lobster or by email at info at ninja.com And please remember to join our mailing list by signing up at CashflowNinja.com or texting Cashflow Ninja to four. 44- 222. To ensure you never miss one of our episodes, you can download our free interactive smartphone apps from the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can also support the show by becoming a patron on Patreon for $10 a month. And when you do become a patron, you get access to our private Facebook page and a Cashflow Ninja t-shirt. You can become a patron at cashflowninja.com forward slash support. Have you read Rich Dad Poor Dad? Are you interested in real estate investing and don't know where to start or how to get the results you want? For valuable information to get you started, visit JoinOpsProperties at JoinOpsProperties.com. If you're not earning at least 8% on your cash or money in your self-directed IRAs, you do not want to miss the private lending presentation for non-accredited investors done by Jimmy Freeland and Bob Scott. Discover how to create an income stream from real estate without the management headaches. You can access the presentation at cashflowninja.com forward slash private lending. Spartan Invest have a proven plan and system, helping investors create passive income and wealth through turnkey real estate ownership in the exciting market of Birmingham, Alabama. Find out why Birmingham has got it going on, why it's a steal right now, why it's a millennial hangout, a hidden gem, and one of the most exciting investment opportunities you have never heard of. You can download your free report, Five big reasons to invest in the magical city of Birmingham, Alabama at cashflowninja.com forward slash Spartan. I've spoken about the most powerful system on the planet, on the show, the banking system. And my firm, Valhalla Wealth Financial, helps people reclaim the banking function within their own lives through leveraging the premium tools and strategies of the wealthy. If you're interested in reclaiming the banking function within your own life and the infinite banking concept, you can access a free webinar presentation at cashflowninja.com forward slash be the bank. Andrew, welcome
2: to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be on here. Can you please share a
0: little bit about your background and journey with my listeners?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm an attorney here in Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, I'm a co-founding partner and managing partner of the firm of York Howell and Guyman, And um, my practice strictly relates to estate planning. And uh, I've been doing it for now about 16 years. My background on it goes back a lot further than that. Actually, my my grandfather was a uh, a very well known estate planning lawyer himself, a Harvard law grad, and and practiced in estate planning for 53 years. Um, Represented families across the country that their last names everybody on this podcast would know. And so, at a very early age, I started working at his office. Uh, He we have a very close family. It's just. My mom is an only child and then uh, just me and my sister. And so we were really close and I'd be working down at his office at a, at a very early age. And, uh, you know, on the on the TV at that time were things like L.A. Law and all these really contentious shows that showed how lawyers practiced. And I went into a meeting one time with my grandfather and um, it, it, this was a billionaire that he was representing it at the time. And I remember sitting here Looking at these two behemoths, I, I mean, I knew who this billionaire was. I was probably 13 or 14 at the time. And my grandpa, because he was always great about bringing me into meetings and when I was working down at his office, and they were talking about this new piece of property that this gentleman had purchased, which was four miles of oceanfront in Santa Barbara, California. And I just thought, wait a minute, this is a pretty cool way to practice law. I mean, you can just sit down and talk to people and make their lives better and help them sleep well at night as opposed to fighting all the time and being in court. And so I knew at a very early age that this is what I wanted to do and spent my my college career doing so and then went into law school. And instead of doing things like moot court or the bar journal or anything like that, uh, I would do uh, things like taxation classes and and uh, from international to business tax and all the estate planning classes that you could possibly take and got out of law school, uh, joined at a large firm here in Utah, um, was there for about seven years and got kind of a wild hair to go out on my own. Did that for about a year and a half till my practice grew to a level that I, I just really couldn't control it by myself. So joined another medium-sized firm here in Salt Lake, um, was there until twenty. Let's see. 13, when my partner David York and I came over and started York and Guyman. So that's a little bit of my background.
0: Fantastic. Now we live in a very uh, fast-changing, ever-evolving world right now, and uh, estate planning strategies need to evolve with these changes. What challenges do you see with traditional estate planning adapting to the speed of of these changes and our evolving world? And what are some of the ways that this new emerging model addresses the shortcomings of traditional estate planning?
2: So, you know, it's a great question. What you, the legal profession in general is sort of this anchor, uh, right? They're always they're always holding back progress. It, it seems like there's the, the, a lot of the laws that we use, a lot of the case law that was developed for those laws, are all going back many, many years, and and it, it's just not the nature of the legal profession to uh, evolve very quickly. And so, you know, so much of the estate planning you know, and what we're talking about here when you come to estate planning is is actually a really broad topic. You know, what's in your estate is everything, right? All of your assets, your business interests, your real estate, your money in the bank, your life insurance, that all builds up your estate. And when you think of planning, well, it isn't just planning at death. It's also how, you know, you plan around that estate during your lifetime. How are you protecting that estate where, you know, bringing concepts of asset protection planning and how are you owning that estate in such a way that it's being the most tax efficient. So we have tax planning and business structuring and charitable giving. So all of these subcategories of estate planning, but so much of what's being used even today is in my mind, 70, 80, 90 years old. And the reason for that is that it was really developed around a time that at least is no longer making or resonating with generations that are, are coming up. But if you look at it, uh, a lot of the estate planning core wills and trusts and and all of the development of that case law has occurred you know, through the 19th and, and 20th centuries. And what happened there, right, is you take our, our grandparents' level uh, of generation, which is people who lived through true financial hurt, right, with the Great Depression. With the Great Depression, people really weren't eating. With the Great Recession, don't get me wrong, it wasn't fun, But we still were eating, right? It was a little bit different. And our grandparents at that generational level, they didn't have assets. And as a result, those assets became critically important to them. And passing of assets to the next generation was the big, big thing. And that's how all estate planning is structured still today. How can we pass the most amount of financial wealth and assets to the next generation with very little regard about who that next generation is? And it's sort of, fundamentally backwards from how trust developed trust really developed from the from the get-go I mean trusts go back 800 years they've been around for a long time but trusts were always around about who was being trusted right who were you giving these assets to to, to watch for the benefit of your kids and then at what point in time did you trust them to be in control there wasn't much talk about the financial wealth but nowadays that's all people think about when they think of estate planning what our generation is doing, though, is they're, they're starting to realize that with the kind of the greatest generation that then moved into the baby boomers, who the you know, baby boomers lived argu- arguably through the most you know, flu- wealthy time throughout American history. Um, and they did have the assets. Well, there started to become this perception that, well, maybe there's more to life than just that financial wealth and quality of life and all of these different kind of things became more important. And it's, you know, we've done a lot of study on this. We had an article in Trust in the States magazine um, in May of this year, where we deal with some of these, these resource or some of the statistics that we've heard, which is, you know, the difference between the greatest generation and what they perceived as their obligation and transferring wealth onto their genera- next generation was like almost 40 to 50% of that generation felt that it was an obligation that they give their children assets well the, the the baby boomers it 's like thirteen or fourteen percent. I mean it is so much below what what the other generation felt, and then you get to our generational level, which is you know generation X, generation y, millennial, whatever you want to do it 's even becoming more where we 're wanting to make this impact within society, not not taking any kind of devaluation of the financial assets and that they are an important piece, but that 's all they are they are just a piece. And they're one cog in the whole planning circle here that we need to look at. And really, what we need to identify before you can put an estate plan together is what is a family's true north, right? What are they going for? What are they trying to accomplish? Otherwise, what we're doing is we're just trying to build a house with no blueprints. We don't know what we're exactly uh, trying to create here. So that's kind of my issue with with you know my per, my profession and sort of a critique of it, and and, and even colleagues that I have within that profession. And it's not a comfortable thing because we as attorneys get very entrenched in what we're doing, in how we do it, the forms that we use, the way that we consult with clients and, and advise them, and it becomes difficult to evolve. And you will see this a very, as a very you know, difficult thing within that legal profession
0: it 's extremely interesting because, as you mentioned you know it 's a more realistic approach of just transferring knowledge and principles and values and uh, the way that you describe it a family 's true north of what the family 's all about rather than just commoditizing these assets and just you know transferring it over without any uh, direction because then it gets wandered
2: yeah, absolutely. I mean we really kind of identified, identified these sort of three fundamental fallacies with estate planning today, which is number one, I think kind of what you were referring to, which is this idea that somebody's wealth can be determined based upon a balance sheet. And it just can't be right. We all know that you can determine somebody's financial wealth, but that doesn't say anything about the experiences that that person has had in life. What have they done? Right. What have they done wrong? And how are we going to pass that kind of knowledge base on to next generations as well? The second fallacy is that this idea that if you pass on some assets And that's a good thing. Well, passing on more must be even better. And that's not the case. We've all probably experienced with friends, family or other people that we might know um, inheritances that have gone awry. Right. Unfettered or undirected inheritances that had a tendency to not make somebody's life better, but in some ways made it worse. And and it isn't the inheritance. Right. It's not the money. Money's not good or bad. It's just a tool. It's how you use it. But when you're giving it on to these un, uh, un, unsophisticated or un, unprepared beneficiaries, it has a tendency to, to have a problem. In fact, there's we kind of refer to this in our book as a, an inverted U-curve, where there really is a time where the, the, the next generation has enough assets of their own to go out and be productive in their own life. And I think that most of us are sort of of that equation, that we'd rather our children make a million dollars than just hand them a million dollars. And then finally, that last, um, thing that we've noticed within estate planning is something I alluded to just a moment ago, that, that when you're doing your estate planning, the very first person you ought to go to is an estate planning lawyer. And, and it's just not. Again, the way that I view this is that, you know, how current estate planning is really functioning is sort of as a, a monarchy, right? You have king and queen, mom and dad up at the top, and then you have the, the, you know, the, the princes and princesses and so forth underneath it that are going to inherit the assets. Or another way to think of it, and I kind of like this analogy better, is that mom and dad are at the center of the family. They're the nucleus, right? They hold everybody together. And as children are you know, getting older, they're sort of radiating out from this nucleus, and then they have their own children that radiate out from their nucleus. But mom and dad are holding everybody together, and everybody's having Thanksgiving dinner at grandma's house and so forth. The problem with how estate planning is set up now is that when mom and dad at the center of that family passed away, that nucleus is gone. The gravity holding every, all the family is is gone. And now everybody kind of spins off in their own tangents. What we're trying to do is get people to realize that you can replace mom and dad at the center of the family and put them off to the side just on the same level as, say, children, you know, still running things and, of course, taking advantage of the fact that they earned it and so forth. But Instead of, of of them being at the center, we now replace that with the family's purpose. What collectively is the family going to try to uh, create in in the world? Who are they and why are they unique? And if we now have that at the center of the family and mom and dad pass away, well, that's still there. And the family is still all gravitating towards that same common goal. And we're now perpetuating on not just the family wealth, but the legacy of being a family. It's a It's a much different way to think about it.
0: Now, Andrew, you co-wrote the book, Entrusted, Building a Legacy That Lost, with your law partner, uh, David York. And in the book, you cover the challenges of making family wealth survive than just a few generations. Now, you've touched on the principles and the values and the knowledge. What are some of the other reasons uh, that you can share with my listeners that you've seen through your research and study and shared in the book? of uh, just the challenges that families face from one generation to another of holding on and expanding and growing this wealth? The,
2: the biggest challenges that I've seen is, um, well, let's start off. I think the biggest challenge so far has been this idea of keeping things private. There, there is a, a tendency, at least with families that I have a tendency to represent, um, who who have a tendency to be kind of higher net worth families, to be somewhat, almost ashamed of the wealth that they've created. Uh, and I don't know if it's ashamed as much as being worried that the wealth, like we're talking about here, would actually be destructive, a destructive force on that next generation by making them unmotivated, by uh, you know making them feel like they don't have to work. And, and and create something within themselves and build their own sort of place in this world. And one of the things that we actually feel perpetuates that is this idea of keeping the doors closed. Don't tell the kids what we have because they're somehow not gonna know. Well, look, your family knows. I mean, they know that they're, you know, taking nice vacations or living in a nice house. And just because you decide to sit in first class and you put your children in coach, that's not necessarily teaching them, you know, these values of of what you've created in, in my personal opinion, open the doors, tell them what is it that you have? What can they expect? Um, what can't they expect? How could, how are you successful? What, what were your failures, right? Your failures in life are probably more important in passing on to the next generation than anybody else. Right. I don't, and I also think it's important for have your family learning from each other. So, um, and we can talk about that and how to do that in a little bit more, but, or a little bit more later. But again, this idea of keeping the, 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 the door shut and not letting anybody know, in my mind, only creates problems. And in this article, like I had mentioned that we had in, in Trust and Estates magazine, one of the things that we had found is that if a family is aware of what's going to happen in a parent's estate plan, even if it means that the family isn't getting everything, that maybe mom and dad are leaving it to charities and other places or other intents, but they know what they're going to get. There is a satisfaction rate, meaning when somebody passes away in what was done in their estate planning of about 86%, or I think 84%. However, in the same scenario, given all the same circumstances and the only difference being the family just didn't know what they were going to expect, there was only a 34% approval rate meaning that you have now many more disgruntled families who don't, who weren't aware, who were surprised. We have the saying in the estate planning world that you never truly know a person until you share an inheritance with them. You don't want there to be surprises. You want the family to be made aware you want. uh, Now that's a really hard thing to try to walk that line when you might have beneficiaries in your family that are already entitled, right? Ones that think that they, uh, don't have to work, or they, they, you know, mom and dad have done so well that, that they don't have to do anything in their own life. Now, that, you know, resetting some of those mindsets is a difficult thing. But the first way to do it is to tell people and, and make sure that they're really clear on what they can expect.
0: And in your book, you also discuss this concept of entrusted planning, which I really found to be very, very powerful. Can you share with my listeners what entrusted planning is and the values and principles behind entrusted planning?
2: Absolutely, yeah. So we we kind of ventured on this endeavor of writing this book about three and a half, four years ago. I think it was published a couple of years ago. But my partner and I both had come from different perspectives in the legal world. Um, again, I told you about my grandpa earlier, and he was you know really one that kind of showed me that what I wanted to do. Well, my partner, David York, his father was a, a an accountant, and and um, came from a kind of a different background. But we both came to the same realization that we felt estate planning was sort of fundamentally flawed with this idea of, of trying to concentrate the wealth and then these erosive effects that occur within that you know a, a estate planning process, which is at mom and dad's death, the assets are divided and spread amongst the beneficiaries. We have taxes and so forth that come in to erode things away. We have potential attacks on those assets from creditors within the beneficiary's life. And we were noticing, right, that that this phenomenon is really true, which in three generation wealth has a tendency to be dissipated, right? We've heard right. that phrase of shirt sleeve to shirt sleeves in three generations. So, what we done is is David and I had both had a, this wonderful ability to work with kind of high level clients for a long time. And you know there are families that successfully navigate this. There are there are families that that don't get devastated in that third generation, and they do things the right way, where they are including the entire family as a whole, and and looking at the family as a business and endeavor that they're all doing together. And these families are the ones that become, at least in our minds, more successful in true wealth transfer. And again, when I say wealth, it isn't just the financial wealth, it's the human life value and the collection of their knowledge and and so forth. There are some some things that these families have, have done sort of of really well. And we lay out these kind of seven principles in the book. And I I don't know if you want me to kind of go through those principles or if you just wanted to uh, allude to them, You, you tell me what's best.
0: Yeah. If you can allude to some of them, I think it'd be very valuable.
2: Okay, great. So one of the first things, right, is something that we talked about already, I think we keep alluding to it, which is that we've noticed that families who really are able to navigate this, uh, do something, which is, they, they really know who they are. They know as a family, what makes them unique, who, you know, you know, who are the howls and, and why why is it that, you know, what, what are the core values within our family that we're wanting to perpetuate? And, and as my family, for example, navigated this issue, one of the ways that we do that, right, is that you have kind of my wife and I have really put some some hard thought into, you know, these various aspects of our lives and what we believe in them and, and what's been successful. And, you know, our kids at 11, 9 and 7 are still fairly young, but we've started to introduce them to this idea, which is what are the qualities uh, that they feel build character and that they want to be, and, and what are the qualities that we see in eto so for So we're starting to bridge that gap. But again, knowing who you are as a family is is, is a very important piece so that we know what we're working towards. Um, discipline two, we talk about that entrusted families prepare the family for the wealth and not simply the financial wealth for the family, right? You're educating that next generation. Our wealthy families, like their kids, yeah, they'll go to, you know, they play in the summer and they take nice vacations, but they also go to wealth planning summits. And we're talking about kids starting as early as five. And, you know, you do them always, of course, in age appropriate ways, but you start preparing that next generation. And like I had said earlier, you don't keep the doors closed. You open them up and you let everybody know what's going on and what's expected of them. And, you know, that's the way that you really kind of um, uh, make sure that that expectation level is realistic at the beneficiary level. Um, In trusted families, they maximize the positive benefits of holistic wealth and minimize the negative effects of the financial wealth. Again, really sort of focusing on those as two different things, that the overall wealth of a family, that the financial wealth is certainly one component of it, but like we analogize money in our book as to being dynamite. Now, when I say that, right, dynamite is not good or bad. It, it can be used for good or bad. It can make bombs and landmines and so forth, or it can build roads and tunnels and help build cities. But wealth is very much like dynamite in the sense that, that there's no question that it's going to make an impact. The question is, how big of an impact is that going to make? And, and so what you're trying to do is you're trying to minimize the negative effects that that, that wealth might make and concentrate on the positive effects. The fourth um, discipline here is that entrusted families focus on the flint and kindling and not on the fire. The analogy here is that, you know, my wife and I, hopefully at our death, are going to have this roaring fire that we've built during our life. Right. With great assets that are functioning well and great family members that are colluding together and making things happen. And we're together. Anyway, just this roaring fire that represents our family. Now if what we did at our death is just hand each one of our children a burning log and say, hey, you know, keep that going, make it back to your own camp that way, well, well, good luck. However, if we focused on what was it that helped us build that fire, the flint and the kindling, as opposed to the fire itself, now what we're doing is we're laying the groundwork for kids to come in and beneficiaries to come in, take their own power and use assets that we may have made available to them to make an impact on their own lives. It's a a different way of thinking about it. Um, Discipline five is that entrusted families have a tendency to be generous. There is there is this this feeling of making an impact within the world. Now, what's really fascinating about this level is that people immediately go to charities, right? Well, we're going to take the the position that Warren Buffett has taken, which is, look, my kids didn't earn it, so I'm just going to give it all to charity so as to not spoil and make my children not have to do anything in their lives. What's interesting about that statement, in my mind, is that the charity that is receiving Warren Buffett's assets didn't earn those assets either. Right. And one of those things is that, that, you know, charities are not very efficient. I think that, you know, the, the, a 40% efficiency rate in a charity is is ungodly high. Now, what that means is how many of your dollars are actually being used for those charitable purposes. I mean, 60% of what is given to a charity goes to administrative costs and so forth did you really intend your legacy to be these high administrative costs that you're paying for? I I don't know. I certainly don't. Now that doesn't mean that, that when you're talking about being generous, that, that you can't have both. And there's these, you know, very dynamic ways of investing going on these days, like impact investing where the generation is looking at, look, it's not just profit or impact within society, that there can be a cohabitation of those two things. And there's really some cool things that are going on that in that. Um, discipline seven or discipline six here, excuse me, is that entrusted families preserve and protect wealth. We're, you know, as we go along and as entrepreneurs, and I consider myself one in starting my own firm, but as entrepreneurs, we're always on the gas, right? We're pushing, we're pushing, we're pushing. It always amazes me how difficult it is to get somebody to talk about protecting what they've already created, I mean, getting clients to talk about death and taxes is a difficult thing in in general. Only 30% of the population even does that. And then you get into this idea of, hey, how do we protect the assets that you are creating? Well, I'll tell you, our wealthy families spend a lot more time on that than um, our clients who are not necessarily at that wealth. Uh, Discipline seven, which is the one that I really like, and this is found in chapter eight, is that entrusted families design and implement dynamic governance, Right this is a, a tremendous issue, which is as you're passing this this wealth, this collective family purpose down through the generations, who's going to run it? How are you going to make sure that it's being run in appropriate ways now of course, you can rely on members within your family, but you don't have to, and you can have a combination of how that might happen and we've noticed that with our wealthier clients, they are much more apt to require professional involvement right who who you know not just leaving it up to one child or the oldest son to make all of the decisions about what 's going on, but rather bringing in committees and, and boards uh, to make collective decisions together and having various people from members of the family serve on the board and, and and getting into a much more dynamic way of looking at how you pass on that that power and control and then um, I guess that 's kind of the last discipline, but then you kind of we go through in chapter nine in our book how that process actually works because what we found here is that there are many books on this subject but they really do fall into two different categories in one category are kind of the lofty feel good hey you know pass on you know wonderful things to your children and don't give them money but they don't tell you how to do it and then the other side of that are the legal treatises that we read that are nothing better than putting you to sleep, right? They're just going to make everybody else fall asleep. Right. So what we've tried to do with Entrusted is to merge those two things. Say, look, this is the way that you can do it, and this is how you do it as well. So you, uh, <laughs> you can have <laughs> me on any time.
0: <laughs> You're listening to Andrew Howell on the Cashflow Ninja podcast. We will be right back after a word from our sponsor.
2: Are you having a hard time finding great investment properties? Unfortunately, the best deals are rarely found locally. Successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best deals across the U.S. Our simple, proven
0: system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly cash flow. Get your free copy of The Ultimate Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing at noradarealestate.com
2: slash guide. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com slash guide.
0: You're listening to Andrew Hull on the Cashflow and Ninja podcast and now back to our interview. And that's what I like about your approach, too, and that ties into uh, a part that we mentioned earlier about the purpose of the family and the values and the principles that, that the, the family has and the purpose that it has for, for this, this wealth and uh, where it's going because that's kind of like the why, right? And you can write this down all in a statement of purpose for your trust. And then the execution is actually the how, how we do it. And that brings in, uh, which we'll jump into in a second with exactly the decision making and who takes care of this and runs uh, runs this uh, uh, trust, if you will, with your wealth. Uh, Andrew, what advice can you give to some of my listeners just when you just sit down as a family and you decide, okay, who we are, you know, the, this is what the lobster stand for and the house stand for. Um, what kind of advice would you give them around structuring that? Are there certain specific things that, uh, that could guide them in putting something together like this?
2: Yeah. We, I mean, we have a sort of a set process. We have a number of various coaches and so forth that we can bring in for families, depending upon their level. There's programs throughout the country that uh, can work with families, individuals, children, and so forth. So there's a number of different resources there. Um, the first thing though, that I would say is that as a family begins to, to address this is to set clear parameters I, when I'm, when I'm not meaning that this is going to turn into a democracy, right? We're not going to go from a monarchy to a democracy here where now all of a sudden mom and dad lose control. Not that at all. What we want to do is set clear guidelines. What, what are mom and dad open to doing? What are they not opening to doing? What kind of control are they willing to give up? What a kind of control are they not willing to give up and set those parameters so that everybody knows clearly what level of involvement they can have. And then once that parameter has been set, what you need to do is kind of get in and, and dig deep. You need to figure out what it is. I mean, go ask somebody, you know, what is your purpose in life? What is your, you know, what are the, you know, what, what do you think are the most important lessons that you've learned and you would want to pass on to that next generation? That is a daunting task, right? To start out thinking about something like that. My right. partner actually, uh, David, he actually developed a board game to help people do this. It's called ribbits and it's basically a trading card game, but it has, um, various, uh, attributes, whether it be, you know, loyalty and honesty and faith and all of these different kind of things. And what it allows the family to do is in a game setting, you, you basically trade cards and you wind up holding in your hand, the values that are most important to you. And, you know, your spouse with the values most important to them and your children with the values most important to them. And you can even play it in the reverse way where you can point out values that you see in other people. And that validation of the character and so forth that you might see in your child, which is, you know, all the time, Hey, why didn't you get an A where you were kind of say, you know, you're kind of looking at the negative, you're coming and say, no, but look, I think you're a really honest person. I think you're, you know, very motivated and you're a hard worker and pointing those things out, really start to ingrain that in that family dialogue. And so this board game has been a great way to, to start getting the discussion started. Um, it's a matter of of really dedicating yourself to doing it though. It's, it's, it's not a simple process. As you can tell, obviously it creates a lot of need for soul searching and, And really getting deep and having some meaningful conversations. Some families don't have the best communication styles in the world. And so that's always some of these things that we need to look at overcoming. You know, what are these stumbling blocks within somebody's plan? It could be there are specific legal issues that are going on right then and getting it into a place where the family can really start thinking about these deeper, deeper levels.
0: And one thing that I've learned, uh, whether it's with family or whether it's with business partners and so forth, if there's a, a conversation that is going to make you feel uncomfortable, that is probably a conversation that's worth having uh, and getting it out there. And this forces uh, the family, too, to have these type of discussions because people don't like to talk about money in their families uh, and, and these things of really what's important to them and to make sure that everybody's on the same page correct absolutely yeah cuz when mom and dad are gone
2: i mean in all honesty we can set up a very elaborate plan with irrevocable trusts and all of these different kind of things that really lay out the parameters for what a family is to do when mom and dad die and if everybody gets together and agrees otherwise it could all be undone i mean there's a it's one of those things that you want everybody on board so that you are uh more positive and more secure in what's going to in what's going to happen after your death.
0: Now, you've mentioned earlier, too, just from the mechanics of actually how, you know, how this is uh, managed and controlled is there's a board of trustees that's appointed by you and obviously the family that takes care of it and they're philosophically aligned Uh, of knowing of what your intent was and your purpose was um, and want to represent you to the best and and make sure that your best wishes are carried out. Can you speak to the importance of that and what is kind of like uh, some valuable, uh, I would say, advice around um, choosing these board members? Yeah, really good question. So, I mean, first, you know,
2: one of the first things that people need to do is to get that infrastructure in place. Right, have the ability to to have a plan that they have controlled. And I am a big fan of people doing their estate planning. Right. When I'm talking to people talking to you about this, I'm not saying don't do your estate planning. You know, get wills and trusts and power of attorney documents and medical directives in place. Again, and that's the what. But as Simon Sinek always says, right, you gotta understand the why. Now, why is is something that we would go into in more detail? But what we're trying to do is lay that groundwork, and the real purpose of that, quite honestly, in this first level of planning, uh, is control. What most people don't realize is that when they haven't done their own estate planning, right? I told you that was seventy percent of the population. Your estate planning's already been done for you. Every state in the nation has adopted a law how your and how your assets are going to pass, but it's that state law that is going to going control. And I'm, a again, a big fan of coming in here and, and taking that control myself. And then me and my wife deciding that if we couldn't uh, or we didn't want to run the trust for some reason any longer or we couldn't because of our death or incapacity and we're now holding those assets in trust for the benefit of our kids, well, that trustee who would come on here in my mind, has to have three characteristics in order to do their job really well. The first characteristic of a trustee is you want somebody that is well organized. Now, I know that sounds like somewhat of a, a menial task, but organizational skills, I think, are the, most, are the fastest diminishing human characteristic out there. We are just becoming less and less organized because we're relying on all of these other devices to keep us organized. I mean, I used to know everybody's telephone number. I can't remember any, anybody's telephone number anymore. But you want that person in there who's got good organizational skills because there are going to be a lot of moving parts that are going on here. The second characteristic of a good trustee in my mind is somebody that makes good decisions. Now, when I say that, I don't mean you have to go get the Oracle of Omaha to be the trustee of your trust. In my mind, somebody that makes good decisions is somebody that has the power to say the three hardest words in the English language these days, which is, I don't know. Nobody wants to admit they don't know anything, but your trustees don't have to know everything. Just like you can go out and get advice from an accountant. If there's a tax question or a financial issue from a financial advisor or a a legal issue, they can speak to a blood-sucking vampire lawyer like me, right? You can go and get help. You want that trustee in there who's willing to go and do it, hiring those advisors that can help make better decisions. The trustee that goes out and tries to make decisions on their own and messes something up, is always going to cost you more than just doing it right from the get-go. And then the third characteristic is the way that I encourage clients to do is a very long-term approach when it comes to leaving assets to the next generation. I actually encourage my clients to leave them in trust for, child, for a child's entire lifetime. And it doesn't have to do with that child themselves. It could be a fabulous child or it could be like I had a client find out his son was planning on robbing a bank still, right, we're going to leave the assets to that child in a lifetime trust for their benefit. And there's a couple of really strong benefits to that. But the fact of the, the that if something happened to my wife and I tomorrow, these assets are going to be in trust and held in trust and managed by this board that she and I have appointed for a long period of time, and my kids are the beneficiaries of it. Well, that third characteristic, I think, has to be somebody that knows the family dynamics. So like in our situation, we filled that three board member uh, of our trust with an accountant who's a good friend of mine. He's a well-organized guy, so organized you'd never want to go to dinner with him. Second person I put on there is a financially minded friend of mine who I think would go and get fabulous advice in making decisions about the trust. And then the third person I have on there is whoever the guardians of my minor children would be. My my guardians of our kids, right? Who's going to have them, love them, nurture them as much closely as my wife and I would have done. I love these people to death, but we don't necessarily see eye to eye financially, but I'm still leaving these assets to help take care of my kids, health, education, maintenance and support. And so I want that trustee to at least understand the family dynamics. So whoever the guardians are, again, they're in the trenches with the kids. They know what their expenses are on a daily basis. They now have this role to play. And I have this board that acts as a a two-thirds majority vote in making decisions. And it's also a way to make sure that the board gets replenished, right? Somebody on that board passes away or is no longer able to serve. The two others who are still able to serve can appoint the third. And now we sort of transition this on through governance. So there's a, a number of different ways to do it. But yeah, there really is this need for trust in the person that you are putting in control here. That's, again, why they are called trusts.
0: And these are the three people that would enforce the the guidelines that are set in some of the rules, uh, to to that the family members should adhere to. And I mean, th- this has happened like with the Rockefeller family trust, right? Where they they there's some strict guidelines for family members to adhere to.
2: Yeah, you know, people talk about it as the Rockefeller method a lot. Um, quite honestly, just just real honesty with you, I, I don't know for a fact if the Roth, uh, uh, Rockefeller um, Trusts are drafted this way, but I've always heard that they are. That sort of the Rockefeller family looks at their family as a business enterprise and that every member of that family is an asset, right? They're being, they're being uh, supported during their life. They've got obviously great health care. They're being educated to the best degree possible. And the hope is that that person will be a meaningful asset to that family. And they have strict guidelines about what has to happen in in regards to, okay, people can't just take assets from the family. They can borrow it, but have the responsibility to pay back. Um, there's also the issue, of course, of family members, if they are assets, well, what happens if we lose one of those assets? Well, I've heard the Rockefeller family requires that generational levels that come into the world have to get life insurance and have the family back as the beneficiary. So that the family recoups some of that economic investment that they've made in that asset that now is gone. I know that sounds a little bit callous to talk about losing a child that way, but that is sort of how they view it. And the other thing is that they've sort of kept that money together, right? That's one of the erosive factors within wealth transfers is to divide it, right? It's like, again, going back to this idea that a five pound stick of dynamite is a lot stronger than five one pound sticks of dynamite. And you can get into more investments and do different things with the money being held together as a family unit, sort of this uh, mine shaft approach as opposed to dividing it and and distributing it. So, you know, you, you kind of hear these things. I've never personally reviewed the Rockefeller Trust, but, you know, another analogy is sort of the Vanderbilt family versus the Rothschild family. And, you know, the Vanderbilt family was by far the wealthiest family in the world and arguably the history of the world. Their estimated net worth in today's dollars would be about $158 billion dollars. And then you had, of course, the Rothschild family, which is the European banking family, which arguably owns the world right now, probably listening. And what happened is throughout those families, they took very different approaches with the Vanderbilt family really taking kind of that traditional model of dumping the assets onto the next generation. And their wealth is really dissipated where the Rothschild family, where, you know, each member of the family would be sent out to different locales within Europe And learning the banking and financing trade of their own before they were ever given the sort of flint and kindling to be able to go and start their own roaring fire within the financial centers and hubs of the world. So it was a completely different way of looking at at how that family dynamic was going to work.
0: And you've spoken about family learning collectively from each other and masterminds, and you just use the the Rothschilds as an example. And that's one thing that I've that I've read a lot up about them, where members of the family, all of the sons that went to different power centers in Europe, you know, one in Paris, one in London, and so forth, they would all still meet annually to discuss best practices, successes, lesson, lessons learned, and also share some of their failures.
2: Absolutely. No, I, so I have like, for example, in, in my trust, I have 16 pages before I actually ever get into my trust about kind of my, my family purpose and what my wife and I are hoping for for the use of these assets and so forth. And one of the things that we encourage is an entrepreneurialism, right? I want my kids to, to, to think about that, to trying to do something on their own. Now, I have nothing against a, a W-2 employee working for another company. And again, that's just fine. Um, it just didn't work well with me and I have, haven't seen a lot of true wealth be built that way. So I've sort of taken a different approach and I want to try to encourage that within my kids. Well, what they're required to do is if they want a business loan, they've got to prepare a business plan, a formal business plan. And the members of my board who are very financially minded people are going to help them with that business plan and and maybe mold it and so forth. And then they have to come and present that business plan to the rest of the family, teaching the family about what they're doing and why they're doing it. And every year they have to come back at our family sort of reunion. We have a family week where we all get together. And during that period of time, it isn't just all fun and games and potato, potato sack racing. We also have a point where... If somebody has taken a business loan, they need to come back to the family and give sort of a state of the business address. How's the business doing? What's going right? What's going wrong? And the idea here is that I don't have a problem with my children making their own mistakes, right? That's just going to happen. But I'll be really bothered if all three of my children make the same business mistake when they could have learned from each other and saying, oh, yeah, I'm not getting into that situation again. So you're creating collaboration. You're asking, you know, f- future generations to become teachers. And there's no better way to learn a subject than trying to teach it. So this is an idea of, again, engaging the family, making them accountable, um, not just dumping assets onto them and perpetuating this wealth, hopefully, of, of, of again, not just the financial assets, but also of of being self-reliant and being entrepreneurial and so forth.
0: So powerful. Now, Andrew, uh, getting a little bit more tactical, there are a lot of listeners that are entrepreneurs and small business owners and, and investors. So some of them have their businesses, they have real estate investments and uh, a large number, especially my clients listening, they have high cash value life insurance uh, policies. When we talk about trust, what advice can you give to some of these listeners that are still kind of in the gray area feeling that they would lose control over the asset when it's into the trust? And maybe talk a little bit about some asset protection strategies involved with the real estate and then uh, as from a larger part, the estate planning as well.
2: Okay. Um, and I'll probably forget that question entirely. So you'll have to add, remind me of the second part. The first part, right, was, was sort of related to uh, insurance. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of insurance myself. I, I've been licensed in insurance for 20 years. I haven't sold a policy in 10 and that policy was sold to my mom, my most important client. But uh, again, I'm not actively in insurance sales, but I really want to keep my license because it is an important piece of estate planning. And I'm a I'm a believer of that and I have a lot of life insurance on, on, on my own life. One of the issues, though, with life insurance is that sometimes there's a misconception that that life insurance is tax-free. Because I knew, I know as an insurance agent, that's one of the selling points. I used to say, look, your death benefit is tax-free. And that's absolutely true when it comes to the income tax. And the reason for that, of course, is that the insurance companies have a very strong lobby, and they have gotten the definition of income within the Internal Revenue Code to exclude death benefit on life insurance. That's the only reason it isn't subject to uh, income tax. But life insurance death benefit could still be subject to the estate tax, right? This tax that is owed at your death by the federal or to the federal government—they come in and they total the value of your estate. And if that value under current law exceeds $11 million, every dollar above that is subject to an additional 40% tax. And this law is, is changing. It probably will change this year, and it's going to change in the future. And we've had different iterations. In fact, in the last 15 years, we've had it even at a level of a $1 million of exemption with a 55% tax on anything over and above that. And it's actually a really hot political topic that goes back and forth. And we don't really know what law is going to apply to you until you die. But the problem with life insurance is that people don't put a lot of thought into how it's incorporated within their own estate planning. But right? if I have, let's say, $7 million or $6 million of life insurance on my life, and I just name my wife as the primary beneficiary of it, well, at my death, $7 million of cash goes to her, income tax-free but now part of her estate along with all of our other assets, which may push us over that $11 million exemption amount. So when you're looking at life insurance, we've got to be careful in how it's owned. Do we want it included into the estate? But that brings into flip sides of control, right? With the high cash value life insurance, one of the things that I'm sure you're doing and I do myself is I borrow from my policy and uh, using that that ability to borrow in a very tax efficient manner from from that cash value that's building. Well, you have to be careful about transferring that life insurance in such a way that you don't lose the ability to borrow from that. And so we use a number of different vehicles um, on that life insurance. And then the second part of your question I think was more of the asset protection standpoint. And with real estate investors, you know, one of the things that is unique about real estate as an asset is that it can create much more liability risk in that asset than you might expect, but if I go and buy a house on the corner that I'm going to fix up and make a bunch of money on, and I put a hundred thousand dollar down payment or, or uh, payment into capital in that home, well, I've made a hundred thousand dollar investment, and I don't care what investment you make. Any investment you make has a potential of loss. Right, you could lose that investment. Now, real estate is, is you know, one of the more stable, I would say, types of investment to classes. But if that earthquake happens and my house gets swallowed up and I don't have active God insurance, well, I've lost my $100,000 of investment. But if I own real estate, my liability risk is actually much broader than that. If LeBron James comes onto the property that I own, slips and falls, injures himself, well, my damages now are not just the 100000 I put into the home. It is his lost earning power and not being able to play basketball for the rest of his life at what, $75, $78 million a year. I can't afford that lawsuit. By implementing various structures that we have in in our practice, LLCs, Limited Liability Company becomes a very uh, attractive type of an entity, but we now have that property owned inside an LLC, and my wife and I own that LLC and now somebody slips and falls, well, we didn't own the property anymore, the LLC did. And it gets sued, but its only asset is that property and that 100000 of equity that I put into it is all that is now at risk. And then, of course, there's a flip side to that, which is through the LLC, we can get some great protection in the sense that, look, I'm out practicing law on a daily basis and I could mess up somebody's plan and if so, I'm going to get sued. Well, these assets that I'm working hard to create, to nest egg and so forth, if I hold them under an LLC structure, well, that LLC was not practicing law. And if there's a malpractice claim against me, they're suing me, not the LLC that holds all of my assets. And they can try to attack my interest in that LLC if if you set it up in a state like Wyoming or Nevada or Delaware, where they have some charging order protections, that is as far as a creditor can go. So, asset protection planning, in my mind, is really this game that we've got to play because somebody's going to play it against you. There are hundreds of different ways to play this game. We've got to know though why we're playing this game before we decide to implement various tools and techniques.
0: Very, very valuable and great, great advice there. Uh, now, Andrew, a core message in our shows to leave our families, communities, and the world better than we found it by passing down a mindset, values, and principles to future generations—not just money. So if you cannot pass on any money to future generations, and we're only allowed to pass on three principles to them to build wealth and achieve happiness and success, what would they be?
2: So I have this you know, wonderful quote. I've mentioned my grandpa a number of times, and, and he was, again, very, very successful. And he had this great saying that I still love, um, which is the key to life is to have someone to love, something to hope for, and something to do. If you have those three things in your life you're going to have happiness now to what level it's completely up to you but those are the three core fundamentals that i think you need to have
0: uh andrew one habit i've observed from wealthy and successful people is that they're always studying new subjects and learning new skill sets what are you currently studying what new skill sets are you currently learning
2: oh really good question so um a couple of, of different things. Uh, from the self improvement standpoint, I've really been into Eckhart Tolle recently. Been reading a lot of his books and trying to do more in myself and living in the present. Um, from a from a professional standpoint, we're continuing to study new ways of people implementing these these family structures and getting wealth transfer and. In, in how we can really start coaching people to do that. And what's great about that is people are starting to catch on and there's programs that are developing to take families through this. But the biggest thing, and this is kind of just my own personal interest, I was a political science major and I actually did an a, a internship in Washington, D.C. back in college and really thought that I was going to get into politics. And so um, I, I have this political background and I am fascinated by the Koch brothers by Charles and David Koch. So I'm currently reading the, their book. Uh, actually, it's not a, it's not their book, but it was um, I forget what it was. I think it's called sons of Wichita or something like that. And the, the fact that that they had stayed out of politics and really Charles Koch had stayed out of politics for so long And then he really got active into politics and learning about those two guys is is sort of a fascinating thing for me Um, because in a lot of ways, they've been villainized within the media. But when you learn more about what their true beliefs are, it's uh, it's a very interesting uh, dichotomy to some of the things that I believe as
0: well. Very, very interesting. How can my listeners learn more about you and your company and stay informed of all the projects that you're involved with?
2: So uh, our website, yorkhowl.com, uh, is a great place to provide some, some resources. Um, our book, Entrusted, is is on sale on Amazon. There's also an Audible for it as well. Unfortunately, it's me reading the book, so you'll have to listen to this voice for another four and a half hours. Um, we're happy to uh, have direct contact as well with your listeners if they make sure to tell me they referred your way. Um, really, we're, we're here to help in any way that we can.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your journey and your knowledge and providing so much value for my listeners. Uh, this is fantastic. I really look forward to it because uh, what you guys are doing is, is quite remarkable and the values that you have around and the purpose of, of the firm is very much aligned of what I'm trying to do. So I've had a blast having you on.
2: Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be here. I always like talking about
0: myself, so you
2: uh, (laughs) you can have me on anytime.
0: (laughs) This is MC Laubscher, the host of the Cashflow Ninja podcast. As you may know, I'm also the president and chief wealth strategist of Valhalla Wealth Financial. can access an exclusive webinar at cashflowninja.com forward slash be the bank. Thank you for joining my guest, Andrew Howell, and myself on the Cashflow Ninja today. If you like what you hear and appreciate what we're trying to build here at the Cashflow Ninja, please subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes and share our show with family, friends, and your network. I'm always trying to learn and improve in every area of my life, so if there's any way that I can provide more value to you and serve you better, please reach out to me at info at com. If you're not a subscriber to the Cashflow Ninja Goshku newsletter, you can sign up for our newsletter at cashflowninja.com or text cashflowninja to 44222. You can support the show also by becoming a patron on Patreon for $10 a month. And when you do become a patron, you get access to our private Facebook page and a Cashflow Ninja t-shirt. You can become a patron at cashflowninja.com forward slash support. Jimmy Freeland and Bob Scott have been in your shoes and have used real estate investing to become financially free. They've designed a system to take any beginner to an experienced deal making investor in the least amount of time. They offer opportunities from basic education, coaching, bridge loan investing to turnkey investments in the cash flowing market of St. Louis, Missouri. For more information, please visit joinupsproperties.com or call Jimmy and Bob at 314 799 2247. If you're not earning at least 8% on your cash or money in your self-directed IRAs, you do not want to miss the private lending presentation for non-accredited investors done by Jimmy Freeland and Bob Scott. Discover how to create an income stream from real estate without the management headaches. You can access the presentation at cashflowninja.com forward slash private lending. Creating passive income for you and your family is easier than you think. All you need are three things the right plan, the right product, and the right turnkey provider. As an investor, you want a safe, profitable, and convenient way to invest your capital without being at the mercy of stock market fluctuations. Investing in real estate in a turnkey way that provides monthly passive income with very low risk is exactly what Spartan Invest provides for their clients. Their mission is to make investing in real estate easy for the busy professional. Spartan Invest helps investors create passive income and wealth through turnkey ownership in Birmingham, Alabama. You can download your free report, Five Big Reasons to Invest in the Magical City of Birmingham, Alabama at cashflowninja.com forward slash Spartan. The wealthiest families on the planet know how to capture their wealth and then leveraging their wealth through their own banking system. If you're interested in the infinite banking concept and learning the premier strategies of the wealthiest individuals and families on the planet, you can access a free webinar at cashflowninja.com forward slash be the bank. That's our show for today, everyone. Until next time, live a life of passion and purpose on your terms.
1: You have been listening to the Cashflow Ninja with your host, MC Laubshire the podcast empowering and inspiring people to discover how to generate their own income and manage, grow, and protect their own wealth in the new economy. Today's show notes and resources are available on our website, cashflowninja.com.